So your most significant activity of every day is to pray. It really is. Do you believe that this morning? That whatever responsibilities you have, whatever urgent demands are upon you, your most important, critical activity is to pray. So in one of our men's groups, we're reading J.I. Packer's Knowing God, and he has this wonderful little statement. He goes, people who know their God are before anything else people who pray. Another book, more devoted specifically to prayer, he says, I believe that prayer is the spiritual measure of men and women in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. That's powerful. So I mean, you can't read scripture very much or go very far before you realize these words are true. And we we actually know it, like we know it's true. I know it's true, but I I need to be told this again and again. See, it's speaking with God that we come to know God. It's where we put self in its proper place, where we deepen our experience of the gospel, where we engage God's power in our lives and the lives of others and the affairs of our needy world. So Martin Luther, back in the 16th century, he had a good friend named Peter. And Peter was his barber. And he was a really devout, gifted guy. And they got to be good buddies. You can just imagine conversations with Martin Luther while he's cutting his hair. You know, those barbershop conversations. So one day Peter asked Luther, look, would you just give me a simple way to pray that any ordinary man can use? Not a Luther, but any ordinary man. And so Luther responded by writing a book called A Simple Way to Pray dedicating it to his good friend Peter, the master barber. And so in his little book, he counsels Peter, above all, a Christian must keep his mind on prayer as a barber must watch his razor, joining it to his vocation, you see, in a way that Peter would get it. Then he extends that further. As a shoemaker makes a shoe and a tailor makes a coat, so ought a Christian to pray. Prayer is the daily business of a Christian. He goes on to say, in prayer we come to God as a beggar, opening wide our coats in order to receive much. We don't give them our hands, we like spread out our garments, like fill it up, like a kid on, on Halloween, you know, like fill it up. So can we honestly say, can I, can I honestly say that prayer is my daily business? Is it my chief vocation amidst all our other very important vocations, like a lawyer learning his contracts, like a doctor mastering her procedures, like a teacher preparing her lessons, like a banker tailoring his processes, like a craftsman honing his skills, like a student expanding her knowledge. Is our prayer that way? So I have a little book I like a lot 
by J.C. Ryle on prayer. It's a little small book, but it just, he keeps asking the probing question. He keeps saying, Christian, do you pray? And so our passage approaches this basic question a little bit distinctly. It's not so much, Christian, do you pray? It's, Christian, how do you pray? How do you pray today? So again, we're on this little discipleship subsection of Luke's gospel. It goes from chapter 10, verse 25, to chapter 11, verse 13. I'm, I'm really appreciating this little unit. And it's all held together by the, you know, the, the, the searching, profound response of the lawyer to Jesus' counter question when he says, the first and second greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this little section tells us what that looks like, what that means, because those are such huge commands. How do you do that? So Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and in that heart-stirring parable, Jesus is illustrating and describing what love to neighbor is. It means like loving anyone in need that we encounter, even our enemy, in the same way we'd want them to love us if they encountered us in our needs. What would you want out of somebody? Be that to somebody else. Well, then Jesus includes the story of Martha and Mary in the account of the disciple who came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray in order to teach in a similarly emotionally moving way about the first greatest commandment. What does love the Lord our God look like? How do I know I'm doing that? How do we? Well, here... We sit at Jesus' feet to learn the gospel from him, and then we respond back to God through the gospel of grace in prayer to God. And that's how we love God. So last week we looked at what to pray, the Lord's Prayer. It's an outline, headings, priorities of prayer, and today we're looking at how do you pray? The question is, if this great God, holy, the, the king of the kingdom, if he is really your father in the Lord Jesus Christ, then how are you going to approach him in prayer? With what attitude? So let's read God's word, 11, 5 through 13. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, 
and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. What a passage. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and this good word endures forever, thanks be to God. So three points. First point is pray with audacity. Second point is pray with assurance. Third point is, what is the third point? Oh yeah, third point. Pray with assurance that God's gonna answer in the best way. All right, here we go. Pray with audacity, verses five through eight. So Luke's the only gospel writer who includes this little story, and Luke has several like that, and they indicate special emphases of Luke's that he, by the moving of the Spirit, wants you to know And it indicates, again, his special emphasis on prayer. Luke's a man of prayer. So the story is a parable. Jesus creates this scenario through a question. And it's it's funny. It's meant to be humorous. The disciples chuckle. But part of the humor is it's also kind of tense and stressful and awkward. It's kind of that weird humor, that, that office humor. So his disciples would laugh and they'd also feel the stress and Jesus aims the parable to get hold of them. So it's not just theoretical. He's not just painting this hypothetical scenario because he looks at him and says, which of you? And the point is he kind of puts his thumb on their chest and says, you're gonna respond to this. Like you gotta make a decision today. All right, so Jesus wants you to make a decision today. So Jesus asks this long question that covers verses five to seven and it serves to paint a scene. So some translations have supposed the scenario more or less, but it's a question. The setting is this small rural village with no shops or restaurants. I mean, and even if there were shops and restaurants, they're all, they're all closed, it's midnight. And this man's friend arrives to his front door, to his, the door of his little house, No warning, no advance notice, unexpectedly, and it's midnight. So to avoid the heat of the day, people sometimes traveled at night. It was just so hot, they set out in the evening. So he gets there at midnight. And so this man's journeying friend arrives to his house at midnight. He's hungry, he's tired from his travels, and he's seeking hospitality, some food and a place to sleep. So to get the humor and the discomfort, we have to realize that it was an extremely high cultural value that was placed on hospitality. Being being a good host to visitors was was so important, um, both for the individual and also for the community. Like you, you just did that well. 
or you'd look bad. It was taboo not to. You'd, you'd feel mortified, shamed. You'd lose face. You showed hospitality. So the traveling friend arrives to this man's home at midnight. So of course, I mean, he arrives to his home. So he, he lets his friend in, opens the door, welcomes him in. But even as he does though, his heart sinks. Like his face gets a little red. He's embarrassed and ashamed because he knows he doesn't have adequate food in the house to offer him. Like he doesn't have food to, to lay before him. No bread. Like he baked his bread in the morning. They consumed it during the day. He doesn't have any more. He's out. The cupboard's empty. So it's this awkward, tense situation he finds himself in. Like either I fail to be a good host with my visiting friend or I impose upon my sleeping neighbor friend by going to his house at midnight also and asking him for bread. I mean, which, is, which am I gonna do? I'm kind of in a pickle. I either, fa- I either fail to show hospitality or I impose upon my other friend. So another crucial theme of this story is that a friendship, you know, friend comes out. How do friends treat each other? So on the one hand, what we're to learn is, well, a friend was gonna show hospitality even if you come late at night. On the other, you're gonna find that a friend is gonna help you provide hospitality when you're in a serious bind. So given the high value on hospitality, the man decides to go to his neighboring friend's house. And so he goes to the neighboring friend's house, he takes a deep breath, am I really doing this? And he knocks on his door and says, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey I have nothing to set before him. And so three loaves was considered good hospitality, it was considered what a man would eat. By saying lend, he's saying I'm gonna pay you back. There was another word for lend that was lend without interest. Um, this, one, this, this lend is actually lend without interest, not a business thing. It, it's the idea of, I'm, do me a favor, I'm gonna do a favor for you. It's the way friends act with one another. So Jesus gets us to imagine how will a friend respond? How will this sleeping friend respond? Will this sleeping friend respond this way? Don't bother me. The door is shut and my children are with me in bed and I cannot get up and give you anything. Is that how the neighbor friend is, is, is really gonna respond to him? And, and notice Jesus makes it poignant by saying that the sleeping friend omits the word friend. Like <laughs> the neighbor comes and says, friend, let me bread. He doesn't respond with friend. So it's gonna be that cantankerous, that irritable. Is he really gonna respond that way? He describes him as annoyed and irritated, put out. And so the situation is that he has this little house, it's a peasant's house, a one-room cottage. The man and his wife and children would sleep together in a mat and that mat might be raised and they might even have their animals at the foot of the bed. Some of you have your animals at the foot of the bed, I know. Um, So the door would be secured with this iron bolt and uh, to get the iron bolt off, I mean, it's, it's a noisy affair. Everybody's gonna wake up. There's commotion in the house to, to, to get up and get bread for your neighbor. Everybody's gonna wake up and then have to get settled back down again. So he, Jesus imagines this neighbor being irritated, annoyed at the bother of, involved. So Jesus wonders, given the trouble involved, the obstacles to giving bread, will this friend refuse to help and send you away? 
And of course, the disciples, you know, immersed in this culture of hospitality, they're going, well, no, he's not gonna do that. Like, he's not gonna really send him away. I mean, it's unthinkable. You just don't do that. You help with hospitality. So Jesus responds in verse eight, confirming this by answering his own question. He says, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So that's to say, even if the bonds of friendship aren't strong enough to where he'd delight to help out his neighbor and motivate him to come to the rescue, impudence would be enough of a motivation. Impudence. I mean, is, is that in your vocabulary? Do you use impudence? You may, I just don't use that word very much. So in English, it means audacity, impertinence, insolence, rudeness, to have nerve or cheek or gall. You've got some gall. To lack modesty, like you're overstepping bounds. In the Greek, it literally means shamelessness. So the NIV translates it, shameless audacity. Garth Brooks was onto something, shamelessness. In, in a way, he probably didn't appreciate as much even, but shamelessness, he was onto something. So, so Jesus is saying, even if this friend lacks the affection and solidarity of friendship, he's going to provide the aid because of the nerve, the gall, the audacity of his friend to come to him at midnight, wake up him and his whole family to help him. He's gonna respond because of the audacity of the request if you dare to ask, he's gonna help. Now, not to complicate things too much, but the, the syntax is a little ambiguous, the arrangement of the words. And so, impudence could even apply to the sleeping friend because of his impudence. And so it comes off the idea of shamelessness. So it could mean this. And sometimes, you know, the biblical writers are intentionally ambiguous. They wanna say a lot. So it could mean that even if he doesn't help because of the warmth and affection and connection of friendship, he'll still help because, because since he's been asked, if he doesn't help, just the same if the man who asks can't help, they're gonna be shamed and embarrassed that they can't provide the hospitality this traveling friend needs. It means the prospect of being shamed is before you and therefore you're gonna respond. And that's an interesting thought, that both might be falling into impudence. Now some commentators would say it means persistence and I think you could say that's involved, but I would just want us to lean into this idea of impertinence and audacity and rudeness. We got the persistent widow coming up in Luke 18. We're gonna hit persistence. But here the point is the discomfort, the nerve, the boldness, the audacity of waking a neighbor up at midnight to ask a favor. Or it's the shame and rudeness that both of them would feel and experience that they can't provide hospitality to this traveling person. And Jesus wants us to lean into that idea. 
And so the lesson is that God isn't an irritable neighbor begrudging you help. That's not the point. It's a how much more idea. He's saying two things. If even a crusty, cranky friend will end up helping you because you have the gall to ask him, how much more will God, who is your very best friend, who always loves you and is always devoted to you, how much more will he respond well to your big, bold, audacious requests when you, a beggar, come to him, open up your coat and say, put it in? You aren't bothering him, you're not stepping on his toes, you aren't running out of favors. He's your true friend, so be impudent. Get some nerve. When you have big burdens, bring them to you. When you feel obstacles in the way, take them to him. It's also that, quite likely, if even an inconsiderate neighbor will finally come to your rescue because he doesn't want to be shamed, how much more will God, who's made some pretty solid covenant promises and whose honor is at stake and whose name is at stake, how much more will he not come through for you when you hold him to his promises? Do you see that he's given you permission to do that? And it feels impertinent to do that. God, you promised that. Come through on the basis of your promise for your name's sake. And you find it all through scripture. You get to pray that way. Second point, pray with assurance. Verse nine and 10. So, Jesus goes on to say, and I tell you, and it indicates what he's about to talk about in, in more clear, direct terms, builds on the parable. The parable supports and reinforces that. And so he gives three explicit commands which also kind of paint their own little story. And what he's saying is because God is your best friend. Do you think in terms of God that way? He wants to be viewed as your friend in this passage. Because God is your best friend, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So ask with assurance, he's going to answer. And these are present imperative verbs. It can be persistence and perseverance, but building off what we've just said, I'd like us to go this way. Keep going to God again and again with all your requests. He doesn't get fed up. He won't finally say, you're just too much. You're too needy. You've got so many needs. Like, you're not running out of favors. You're not too much trouble for him. He's never gonna say, you're a gaping chasm of need and I'm tired of, I'm tired of coming through for you. And that's what we think. When your friend comes at midnight, the next night and the next night, you can keep going next door and asking him. So these verses are the heart of the section. The first and the last little stories reinforce it. And the three commands are synonyms on prayer. Uh, we ask for something another might be able to give us. We seek for something that we've lost and can't find. We knock on the door to enter a building to gain admission to someone who can do something for us. 
And going from ask, seek, knock, you kind of get the sense that the intensity is building. You could be becoming more impertinent as you go through that cycle. Like I've asked, I'm seeking, I'm, I'm knocking. When we come to God asking, seeking, knocking, we know he'll give, we'll know we'll find, we'll know he'll open. And why? These are prophetic promises that Jesus gives us. Everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks it will be opened. The idea is that it's this extravagant sense of accessibility to God. God, the good and faithful friend, will most assuredly answer us. And of course, we have to say, it doesn't promise that God is, that God is uh, will answer us according to what we are wishing in our request. Because God's not a vending machine and he's not a computer program. He's a very wise, all-knowing person who's out for our best as our best friend. But he says, ask, I'm gonna respond in the best way. And that's reinforced in the next section. Pray with assurance that God will answer in the best way. So that's 11 through 13. And Jesus moves, uh, intensifying our insurance by moving from friendship to even a closer relationship, that of parent to child, father to son to daughter. So in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus commended us with the privilege of saying, Abba, Father, like he prays to his Father, that deep affection and approachability with profound awe and respect all together. Like the way I approach my Father is the way you get to approach my Father in the gospel. So therefore, we're to have confidence and security to freely enter his presence and ask and know that he's gonna respond well to it. So he says, look, if we ask for a fish, he's not, he won't give us a serpent. If we ask for an egg, he won't give us a scorpion. And so a fisherman could throw out his net for a fish and could land a sea snake instead. Or a farmer could go out collecting his eggs and mistakenly reach out for a rolled up scorpion. Not highly likely, but there was a slight similarity. But the point Jesus is making is that when we bring our needs to our heavenly father, he won't give us something useless or hurtful or dangerous. He's gonna give us something good. And he presses it by saying how much more again. So if you earthly fathers and mothers are able and eager to give good gifts to your children, even though you're evil, you're, you're deeply flawed, you're full of pride and sin and self-centeredness and greed, everything, you know. Like, if you, knowing what your hearts are like, are so bent on, consumed with providing good nurture and satisfying your children with good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father, robed in majesty and holiness, Utterly holy and loving, will he give good gifts to his children? How much more? It's like what Lloyd-Jones says, God is much more ready to give than we are to receive. Much more. 
And underscoring how generous and liberal he is, instead of saying good gifts, as the parallel passage in Matthew 7 says it, Luke changes it, again noting his unique slant. He changes good gifts to the highest gift, the greatest gift, the source of all other good gifts, that is the Holy Spirit himself. That the the Father promises to give you, in response to your audacious requests, the third person of the Trinity, to live in your life, to empower you, comfort you, guide you, make the Father, the Son present with you and be with you. That gift, the third person of the Trinity, to inhabit your life. And it helps us focus what the boldest, most importunate, most audacious requests are. They are all the unfathomable spiritual blessings in Christ, what Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem to earn for us. And so you go to God and you say things like this, God, I want you to let me know you, being the pygmy that we are, you, Go to God and you have the nerve to ask him, forgive my sins today just like I asked you yesterday and I'm gonna ask you tomorrow. You go to God and say, I have the, you had the gall to go to God and claim Jesus' righteousness as your own. You have the temerity to petition that God adopt you into his own family. You have the importunity to implore that he never separates you from the love of Christ. You have the audacity to say, God, preserve me all the way to glory and then make me look like Jesus when you glorify me. (laughs) And then you have the shamelessness to ask all of these abundant blessings to a host of other people that don't even care about them. Do that for them too because I love them. And then if you are bid, ask all these sorts of huge prayers, surely also you can bring all your other needs to him too with the same audacity. And we do this because of the gospel because as Paul Miller wonderfully said, prayer mirrors the gospel. We come to God not in our own adequacy, but Jesus' adequacy, not because we're full, but because we're empty. And Jesus gives us this reassurance because we always doubt it, we always think we're bothering God and we've run out, run out of coupons. But what God is telling us here is, look, I sent my beloved son to the cross to take all your guilt and shame away from you in order that I might become your best friend. And even more than that, that I might become your loving heavenly father. And if that's the way, if that's the lengths to which I will go to redeem you, then surely you can believe that it's no trouble for me to respond to all your prayer requests and apply all these benefits to your heart because that's what I'm about. He's telling us if I will serve you in the greatest way, I'll surely serve you in the lesser ways. Just come to me and ask. And so how are we gonna pray, you and I? Well, might we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, which is importunity? I think that would be pleasing to God. I think he's asking us to do it. And in doing that, might our love for the gospel explode because we're coming with so much need 
and it mirrors the greatest need we have that Jesus has always covered at the cross of Christ and his resurrection to glory. Might we be a people that is praying with importunity. Amen. Let's stand.